Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. a treat for me to talk with Gerald Winslow, who has been no stranger to many folks involved with Spectrum. And he's going to be our Friday evening kickoff speaker for our upcoming conference. So I want to welcome him to this conversation. Oh, thank you, Alexander. Been looking forward to it. So, um, Today, we're going to talk about a wide range of things, including an article that you published a few years ago. And of course, um, some of your, I'd love to get some of your thoughts on identity and how it connects with Adventism and beyond Adventism. But I want to start off, um, since we're talking about identity, among other things, I'd love to get your kind of earliest or um, earliest dominant memory of Adventism. What defines that um, for you? That's an interesting question. Um, memory being what it is, I'm not always sure that I can remember what I had for breakfast, <laughs> breakfast this morning. So remembering my earliest uh, recollections of Adventism might be a bit of a stretch. But uh, certainly one of the things that comes to mind is going to the Sabbath school at uh, the Albany Seventh-day Adventist Church in Oregon. I'm an Oregonian and uh, Going to that Sabbath school was just a normal part of life. My parents were converts to Adventism, and they loved referring to what they called being in the truth. I don't hmm. know if people still use that language, but they had they had become members of the truth, and they were living in the truth. And uh, mother had been a confirmed Missouri Synod Lutheran. Dad wasn't really much of anything. He was a Canadian. Um and uh, the two of them together decided they would join the Adventist church be, to, not long before I was born. So, um, yeah, going to Sabbath school, they tell me that I went to church for the first time when I was about uh, three weeks old. Wow. And I guess another early vivid memory would be going to the Oregon camp meeting at Gladstone where uh, something like fifteen to 20,000 Adventists would assemble on uh, a weekend, uh, actually two weekends, and then be there during the week, uh, many of them too. And I never missed an Oregon camp meeting for my first 21 years of life. Uh, and that was kind of a major annual event. So that'd be a couple of very vivid memories. That's great. One more question on that. Um, I know you spend most of your time thinking critically um, and uh, exercising your analytical skills, but I'm curious what emotions those, that those mem that memory brings up for you, or thinking about that, you know, 21 year ritual of going to camp meeting. Um, what does it connect for you inside? Oh yes, well, uh, honestly, mostly joy. Uh, there were three things we looked forward to every summer. One of them was the Albany Timber Carnival, which was uh, a timber fest with the throwing of axes and the sawing off of trees and so forth. Uh, another was the Oregon State Fair in Salem, Oregon. Hmm. Uh, but probably the big highlight of the summer uh, was um, camp meeting because my mom uh, always took 
uh, my sister and me to the Oregon camp meeting for the entire time. It was 10 days. And I remember uh, I would save from the time I was about six years old, I would be picking crops uh, in the Willamette Valley to save up quarters so that I could take them to camp meeting and buy veggie burgers, <laughs> which was a genuine luxury we didn't have at home. And uh, veggie burgers and something we called pronto pups, which I think nowadays are called corn dogs. Huh. But uh, that and boysenberry juice that they had. So I, I associated all of that with uh, one big long party. <laughs> Sounds like a delicious party. It was joyful. Uh, and I, I look back on it with uh, great fondness. Well, thanks for taking that trip down memory lane. Why don't we jump uh, forward a little bit and why don't you talk a little bit about um, what I, how identity connects with your work with uh, Christian bioethics? Mm -hmm. Well, I assume that we're really focused on Christian identity and in particular Adventist identity. Yeah. Uh, when I think about my identity, I have many things, of course, um, I'm a grandfather who loves to be called Papa by my perfectly delightful grandsons. Uh, one of my favorite roles in life has been being an uncle to nephews and nieces on both mm. sides of the family. So there are many. And, and my real identity, I often think to myself, is farmer and woodworker. Uh, I only masquerade as a professor and theologian <laughs> uh, because I'm most at home either in my my little farm, which is really a garden, and uh, or my wood shop uh, where I make things. Uh, so there are many, when I think of identity, there are just so many dimensions to that. But assuming that you want to talk about uh, Adventist identity as a Christian, uh, growing up in the home I did with parents who were converts, we certainly thought of ourselves as conservative Adventists. I only learned later uh, that we weren't. Uh, we didn't have any Ellen White books in the house except one that was on the councils on diets and foods, which when I finally read part of it as a teenager, I realized uh, how how much that book was honored only in the breach, as they said, <laughs> uh, at my house. We were anything but vegetarians. We raised our own uh, animals and ate them. And, uh -huh. uh, and I, I always went to public school for the all through elementary school and on into high school until I finally went to an Adventist boarding academy. And that's when I first began to discover that uh, maybe my parents only thought they were conservative Adventists. Uh, so my identity has been shaped by the fact that I've spent a lot of years in public schools and then did my Ph.D. in Berkeley, California, and um, and in those settings, of course, one is uh, oddly different. Uh, there were many things about being Adventist as a youngster that meant I couldn't go to the dancing lessons, for example, that the school had. I had sure. to sit out with uh, the only other person sitting them out was my friend Bob Sheffield, who's still my friend, who is a member of the Church of God Seventh Day and had similar convictions. And so... I, there is a price, I suppose, to be paid for that being weird. I, I was an avid athlete, but I couldn't play ball on Friday nights, which meant I could only letter in baseball because we had no lights uh, at our public high school. And so we could, had to play all of our games in the daytime. Uh, 
shaped that way as somebody who's in a sense always feeling a bit like an outsider uh, has its advantages and its disadvantages. Uh, one of the advantages is all the rest of my life I felt really comfortable in ecumenical settings. I'm probably one of the more ecumenical Adventists you'll meet in that I, I just find myself um, in some ways more at home in an ecumenical setting with different faith traditions. Let me jump uh, in there. I'm just curious, why is that? What What do you think about your, um, you know, the way that you were raised, your background makes that um, a comfortable experience for you? Well, for example, when uh, in the summertime, we would go back to South Dakota, where my mother was from, and uh, she was a confirmed Missouri Synod Lutheran. And I don't think she ever really left that faith. I don't think she saw a huge difference between being uh, a Christian of that persuasion and being an Adventist, other than we added Sabbath uh, to the mix and um, a few other differences. And we didn't drink alcohol, that was a difference, or smoke. But we would go back and live there in the summer with uh, my German, American, Lutheran family. And we would go to the Lutheran church every Sunday. And um, so I was very at home in that setting. And uh, and I think probably there's there's something that shapes us early on in life that in my case, at least at least when I'm hanging out, as they say, with my Adventist friends in different settings, I noticed this difference, and it, as I say, it has its advantages and disadvantages. Uh, there are many things. My wife, who had a somewhat better Adventist background than I did in terms of knowing the tradition, more than once she's pointed out to me that I probably embarrassed myself by not knowing certain things about the Adventist faith. Like, I didn't know we weren't supposed to eat mustard or something like that. You know? <laughs> so I may ask for it at the church potluck and not realize, oh, that's actually forbidden. Um, so that's, there are many funny stories of that sort in, in my life. Uh, and, uh, some, and I, and, and yet it, not going to an Adventist church school, which wasn't available where I lived, um, meant that there were a lot of things that I wish I had learned early on that I didn't hmm. and had, had to learn later and still struggle to, to, to learn now things that, Things that others who are, have the privilege of going to a church school probably just take for granted. Uh, just knowing the books of the Bible, well, you'd think that an Adventist theologian who went all the way through a seminary and a PhD would, would know them really well. But I, I noticed that the other people could always find them faster than I can. Well, I appreciate all, um, these confessions <laughs> from you. Um, and uh, I think once you dig a little deeper, a lot of Adventists, are sometimes don't, you know, always feel like they fit in for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, uh, folks who, you know, perhaps spent their entire life around uh, Silver Spring and the General mm. Conference sometimes can travel to another part of the world and feel like that Adventism is very different. Um, you might say foreign. What I want to um, pursue with you is this sense of um, – being on the margins um, in an article that you wrote that I read that we'll be posting along with this podcast, you, you use the phrase, uh, a prophetic minority. Right. And I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit as you reflect on um, what Adventism offers the world. 
Well, I wrote that article after I had uh, been living in Germany for a time as a visiting professor at the University of Tübingen in southern Germany. And um, I wish that every Adventist who lives in a place like Loma Linda or Silver Spring could have that experience because in a European setting like that, we are often made to feel like a weird sect, like um, there's really no place for us. I'll just give you a couple of examples. When uh, we were living in a little village there in southern Germany and I commuted into Tübingen where I had my office, uh, our 10-year-old was in grade school and the principal said, now, do you want your daughter to have uh, Lutheran classes, Evangelisch they call them, or Catholic classes? Uh, and of course, there's not a third alternative where you could say, well, I want her to have Adventist classes because the Germans have, as I mentioned in that article, the two Hauptkonfessionen, or the, the, the chief confessions. And uh, so, for example, my Adventist friend couldn't even get a doctorate at this prestigious university in religion, even though I could come as a visiting uh, scholar there, uh, because getting a doctorate there is confessional, and he's not of the right confession. Uh, as the dean of the Protestant faculty said to me one day, how would we examine him? Because we, we wouldn't be able to ask him questions about faith. I don't think most Americans can understand what it feels like to be forbidden to get a, a doctorate in a setting like that because we're not part of the two chief confessions. And as a result, uh, Adventists in Germany have moved in the direction of being recognized, uh, as their word is honor Kant or recognized officially by the government as a, as a church rather than some sort of weird sect. And there's been quite an argument among German Adventists about whether or not we should be recognized. And I just use that as an illustration about identity. And about, it, it seems to me that we don't always get to choose whether or not others look upon us as a minority. And as long as we are faithful to the distinctive contributions that Adventists can provide the world, things like holy time and the goodness of embodied life and the importance of healthful living and so forth. As long as we emphasize those things, others will decide whether we're weird or not. Uh, but I'm in that article, I was just asking us to embrace the best of Adventism and realize that the world really needs that prophetic voice now more than ever. Uh, and, and we should not be afraid to be called sectarian if that's the price we have to pay um, yeah. in, in order to in order to hold up our end of the conversation. You, you know, I had a um, as I was reading your article, I actually triggered a memory for me, um, which was a pleasant memory for me, maybe not for my passenger, who was the Yale scholar Laman Sana, who recently passed away. And I was driving through the streets of Washington, D.C. It was raining and I was he was so engaging as a conversationalist that I kept taking wrong turns. <laughs> but what he uh, was talking about was uh, his interactions with Adventism as somebody who is a who was a scholar of uh, kind of global Christianity. And he used this phrase or this term um, being on the moral margins. Mm -hmm. And um, it 
what what you're talking about with this kind of perspective from outside as a minority in faith terms um, really triggered this kind of revelation that I had while he was talking or sense of pride even that he was saying that sometimes when you're on the margins, it can really give you a perspective into your own privilege and also the um, the kind of um, blind um, errors of the dominant culture um, that they might not be aware of. And of course, everyone comes with their own identities and perspectives. And so it's not like Adventism has a special place, but I think it can find a way to use its position to give it a kind of a clarity, if you will. So I'm just throwing that out there. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Well, as you know, as I was thinking about this opportunity to visit with you, Alexander, I was I, I think the story came to mind of going back to an alumni homecoming in Berkeley and uh, one of the fellow alums uh, noticed my tag and it said Loma Linda University. And she knew enough to know that Loma Linda University is Adventist. And she said, you mean you went all the way through a PhD program in Berkeley and you're still an Adventist? <laughs> and uh, I loved that question <laughs> because it was it was just a little bit cheeky. I thought, well, I can be that way myself. And so I said, well, it was when I was here in Berkeley that I learned how much people like you need me and my faith tradition. And <laughs> that opened up a, a rich conversation the rest of the evening. Uh, but if you got to fill in the rest of that story, uh, what would you say at that point? How so? She said, uh, well, how so? Uh, I think that we do have a lot to offer that was given to us as a prophetic gift. Uh, the way I often think of my life is that I get to carry a torch that I didn't light. Uh, and I hope it burns a little brighter, a little clearer during the time that I have the opportunity to be part of the faith tradition. Uh, but how, how does the world get blessed in any special way by the fact that there's a prophetic minority known as Seventh-day Adventists. Well, I said to her on that occasion, I, I think my faith tradition has, for example, the tradition has, has the gift of holy time. And uh, that's lost in today's world to a substantial degree. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that um, in the hustle and bustle of modern industrial societies, is lost in the holy days of the Republic even, get just to be long weekends uh, filled with even more uh, scurrying about. So the gift of holy time, the gift of the goodness of embodied life, uh, there are many things that we can emphasize that need to be emphasized now. The value of preventing disease rather than waiting to only provide rescue medicine after people are sick and injured uh, certainly that's deep in the Adventist DNA, and our whole society is learning now how important it is to know that. And, and it's interesting now to be Adventist at this point in the 21st century and realize how many people around the country turn to us saying, we think you know something about how to do this. And I realize that we're often given a halo that's much larger than we deserve. Sure. Uh, and the, the challenge, I think, sometimes is... Uh, is to grow into the halo 
that people already give us because they think that Adventists know something about uh, about the prevention of disease and the establishment of habits that will lead to a healthful life, just to pick one example. So I, I'm more enthused about being Adventist probably than ever before. I, I'd like to help in the years that I have left on the planet to uh, have, have that torch burn a little brighter. Um, just th those are some examples one could give many more. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I read a book um, a while ago um, called Sex, Diet, and Debility in Jacksonsonian America. And it's mm. about Sylvester Graham. And the, it, the author uh, cites some of um, early Adventist uh, um, attraction um, and citations of the, the kind of crazy, but also you might say far-sighted um, uh, health fads that Adventists picked up. Mm. Um, and I know a lot of scholars have looked at that, but what this book gave me an appreciation for, I feel like was this idea, this kind of comfort with being on the margins. Adventists were seen as kind of a sect um, from uh, its origins. And I think this the experience that you were relating in your article being in Germany um, kind of mirrors uh, the experience that I would hear a lot of folks talk about growing up with this sort of feeling of not necessarily fitting into the mainstream. And there's a lot of different approaches that people can take. One is to sort of seek the mainstream, slip into kind of middle class bourgeois America. What I, what I kind of feel you um, addressing correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, it's okay to kind of be outside a little bit. And perhaps that gives us an appreciation and maybe even a sense of solidarity with other folks who feel marginalized in uh, our culture um, today. And that farsightedness, that prophetic minority perspective allows us in some way to maybe exercise some empathy for folks that are not part of the kind of dominant power system. That's exactly right. Uh, I, it seems to me that uh, we should be very careful about trying to act as if we were one of the mainstream religions of society. I, I was influenced by the Mennonite theologian named Yoder. Oh, yeah. John Howard Yoder, uh, who said of early Christians, the last thing in the world they would have imagined is when it came to being a force in society, the government and so forth, is that they, the Christians, would be running things. Uh, that, that that wasn't their calling. And now, inevitably, it happens in society that uh, as it becomes at least nominally Christian, although some people would say now maybe post-Christian or neo-pagan or whatever, uh, the, it's easy to forget that early Christianity was born in an environment where it was costly to adopt the faith and where it was normal in the Christian faith to take the side of the vulnerable and the sick. 
uh, it seems to me that it was perfectly fitting for the Christian faith to become known, for example, for establishing hospitals or places where the, especially the impoverished sick could come for care. And this is, I think, a well-documented part of history. Adventists, when we're involved in healthcare, are really just uh, perpetuating something that's very deep in the Christian story. Uh, and why isn't that exactly what we would expect if we follow the Lord Jesus who invited us to share the gospel and to heal? Uh, and that healing is especially good news, both spiritually and physically, for those who are the least likely to experience healing in society, those who are the most vulnerable, the most exposed ones. And uh, so I, I do think there is the opportunity, not always easily taken, uh, for Adventists to identify with those who are the down and out, those who are oppressed. It seems to me perfectly Adventist to be on the side of the, of the undocumented person who shows up and needs special help. Mm -hmm. I just I just learned yesterday about one of our Adventist churches just to the east of us here in a little town that's completely overwhelmed by busloads of uh, people seeking asylum who are actually literally being dumped off in that town uh, by our own government. And here's a little congregation of a handful of Adventists who have banded together with others to provide clothing and food and uh, a safe place to stay. And it just seems to me that's exactly what uh, what I would want a prophetic minority to be doing, uh, echoing, I think, the words of the of the prophets who um, who remind people that they were once aliens uh, seeking a, a new land, and uh, so they should remember that when the sojourner comes within their gates. That's just one example, but there are many others. I, I mentioned in the article, I'm, I'm very uh, pleased to be an Adventist when I see us go into court to defend the religious liberty of other groups who, whose practices may be a world apart from our own and maybe even embarrassing in some respects. Uh, people who, Native Americans who use peyote as a psychedelic drug, but it's part of their religious practice. When Adventists have gone in and written Friends of the Court briefs in protecting those, uh, those practices, not because we want to participate in them, but because we want to live in a society where, where people are free to live out their faith, uh, that makes me pleased to be part of that prophetic group. So those are examples. Uh, again, I, I hope the list is long and there are many others. I, the danger for Adventists, as, as we live in places like Loma Linda, where I lived for many years, I, I live near Loma Linda now, but is that we might come to think of ourselves as the state church. Uh, we might think of ourselves as, as the dominant religion in the area. And we also become rather financially successful and uh, we may get prestigious letters behind our name. And at that point, it can become much more difficult to identify with the down and out and the poor. And then there's a strange sort of conservatism that creeps in that is really, in some respects, hostile to those who are most vulnerable and begins to see them as welfare cheats and, uh, and, and, and sees the opportunity to help as no opportunity at all, but just a, uh, a uh, 
miserable support of people who are too lazy to get up and work. And I bet I'm not the only person who might be <laughs> who might be engaged in thinking of these thoughts as you've collected them in this podcast, uh, who knows exactly what I'm talking about here. Yeah, I'm I'm I really appreciate the examples that you brought up there. Um, maybe as a last question on that, how, uh, given the fact that you have spent so much of your time um, um, thinking about Adventism, thinking about Christianity and its kind of social, ethical um, demands on us, um, principles, um, how have you um, been able to um, kind of work through that push and pull of, of, um, being, you know, part of a kind of a, of an institution, which has its own conservatizing force, um, you know, showing up on time, having meetings, you know, sticking to policies and how have you kept that, that flame alive to always, um, kind of look, uh, for the, the, the minority and, and ways that, that we can empathize and act on their behalf. Well, I don't want to claim any special heroism on my part uh, for any of that, but uh, one of the privileges I've had being a senior executive in Loma Linda University's health system uh, for a number of years, something from which I retired here a couple of years ago, uh, is to look at how we are contributing to the well-being of the community. Uh, perhaps we should consider it a gift of our federal government that charitable organizations like Loma Linda and all of our Adventist health systems have a responsibility uh, put upon them by the federal government to show that we are actually changing health outcomes in the community by investing in community health development. And uh, years ago, that I became the vice president who had, among many other things, uh, the responsibility to be the executive sponsor for that, that line of work that we call community health development. And I don't think the CEO at the time could begin to understand how happy I was the day I got that assignment, uh, because that's a great opportunity to look at how we're making strategic investments in the community on behalf of those who are the, the least privileged. And uh, there are many examples that have emerged. When I first became the, v, the vice president, looking after that, I did a bit of an inventory and I stopped counting when I got to about 80 programs of outreach we were doing in the community. Uh, now, many of them needed to be perhaps better, more strategically aligned, but uh, it wasn't for any lack of involvement uh, that at that time. Um, there are many examples that I have get no credit for at all, but I'll just mention one that has emerged here at Loma Linda, where we have created a so-called Gateway College, you may have heard of, mm -hmm. uh, with the help and the support of a Native American group, the San Manuel uh, Band of Indians here, um, or Native Americans, as we now call them. Um, and the, the Gateway College provides an opportunity for young people coming out of our high schools to get the first step into the health professions 
where we offer a great education that includes attention to the spiritual well-being of patients. And at the end of these short courses that may go for six months, a year, year and a half, two years, uh, they have pretty good job security with rather good earning power and the ability then to begin going up that ladder of professional development. Uh, here a couple of years ago, we just had our first student graduate from medical school out of that program. And we've had hmm. a number of others from nursing and, and the allied health professions and so on. That's an example of real missionary work on behalf of those who have very limited prospects in life because many of these people are the first persons in their family ever to go to advanced education of any kind. And uh, often the first person to, in their family to finish high school even. And one person coming into the health sciences that way can leverage a whole family out of poverty. So to me, that's just one uh, example of many of the many things we could be doing so that the community around us prospers and we don't wait until people are sick and injured to show up at the hospital to take care of them. But we really move resources upstream uh, to make a difference ahead of time. Uh, that That's the kind of thing that I think is Adventism at its prophetic best. Hmm. Well, that's a great uh way to end this. Um, thank you so much for talking with me today. And um, thank you for your um, legacy of uh, uh, thinking and acting uh, with our community. Well, thank you. And to all of the listeners, if you come to Loma Linda, uh, look me up. The name's Winslow. I'd be delighted to show you around our place and to talk more about these same topics. Great. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive.